I'm going to read Ephesians 6, verse 18, and then I'd like to ask Malcolm if uh, he would pray for the ministry of the, of the Word. Ephesians 6, verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let us pray. Some would look at this verse and say that this is not for all believers because it says praying at all times in the Spirit. And yet I see here that prayer is every Christian's duty continually and not just for those with some extraordinary gift. The Lord Jesus himself in Luke 18 when he begins to tell the parable of the, the men, the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying. He says he was telling them a parable to show that all, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. We know in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the verbs that he uses for prayer, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, he says in Matthew 7. Always, in every season, it means, in every duty, on every occasion, as a believer, we are called to prayer. And so he says, at all times, always, in everything. And we must pray in the Spirit. Now we do know from Romans 8 that Paul explains to us, he says, we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And some over the years, over the centuries, have interpreted this as since we don't know how to pray as we ought, then they will write it out for us and prescribe for us what we ought to pray. And I believe there is some value to written prayers but as we discuss over these few weeks of the summer prayer, we're focusing on that prayer which is from our closet, that prayer which is with the believer and between the believer and God, not so much public prayers. And I guess I'm on the side of John Owen that says there may be some value in prescribed prayers but the mandate, the, the duty that we see from Christ and the apostles is that men and women ought to be of prayer. That we ought to have all prayer, as he says here in Ephesians, with all prayer and petition, and particularly petitions for the saints. And so it is with 
all matter of prayer and all manner of prayer that we would pray. Owen himself says, those who are thus affected by the Spirit do never want a gracious ability of making their addresses unto God in vocal prayer. So far as is needful unto them in their circumstances, callings, states, and conditions. That this is something that is every believer's not only duty but privilege. That we pray at all times in the Spirit by his help, by his, as it says, interceding with groans too deep for words. Not just for those with some extraordinary gift, if it even exists. And so we see that we have here some view of the matter of prayer, what some of the theologies call uh, the nature of prayer. I like the word matter of prayer because we will discuss, Lord willing, next week, the manner of prayer, the way in which we ought to pray. The difference is that the matter of prayer, I think, is those things that we ought to pray for and about. Um, and I like the words that Benjamin Palmer uses in his theology of prayer, the language of prayer, as opposed to that manner of prayer which Owen says, the Holy Spirit works a due sense and valuation of them. Of, of these things that we ought to pray, the Spirit works in us a desire for them, a desire after them uh, upon our will and affections. So this evening I would like to look at these aspects of the language of prayer, the, the matter of what we pray for and about. Palmer writes that it is, in his mind, similar to the, the colors of the rainbow. There are seven colors and they are of the spectrum, as we know, some very close, or they're very close in wavelength and yet very distinct and, and very vivid to us. And yet they come to us in, in singular uh, light, and yet we see that as, as, so as part of a whole, but we see them individually. And so I'm going to use as my headings three of his four, uh, the language of, of prayer, um, and look at these, but they come in couplets except for the last one. Um, I don't think uh, Palmer was perhaps familiar with the Roy G. Biv. Uh, some of you met him in your science classes. So there's no real alliteration here, but looking at these as couplets and how they fit together, and, and yet, as, as our brother mentioned, that um, quite often we think of maybe praise and, and maybe petition, but do we even think of confession? And so I want to lay before you these seven things, three couplets and then a final one on specifically what Paul asks here, petitions for all the saints. The first of these is the language of worship. Language of worship in adoration and praise. And you might say, well, those are pretty close, and they are. And, and yet I think there's a distinction between adoration and praise. Adoration could be defined as the awe of the soul with the majesty and the glory of God. It's something that focuses on the nature of God and the fact that, that God as a being unto himself is worthy of adoration. 
And how do we see that in scripture is, is by the addresses that the writers and those who are spoken of address God, the Lord strong and mighty. Or perhaps we turn to the ones that speak of the King of glory, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the high and lofty one, the scriptures call him. It's addressing him as God, as his nature. And then it flows in adoration in that address because we see that it expanded in, in many places. Bless the Lord, O my soul. There, there is this thing that draws that the, the nature and the majesty of God draws that adoration out of us. We, we see him as king and yet there is that which desires to, to worship him and bow down before him as king. Unto the king eternal, the scriptures say, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. See, we, it's almost as if our, our hearts can't stop there uh, with just the Lord or the Lord God Almighty, but that draws us on to, to want to express that in words and fill that in. And there is a sense, I think, with some of the writers that adoration is almost too much for man. We, we are like Isaiah in that picture of he sees the Lord high and lifted up and, and yet he, he knows who he is and he falls down before him in worship. And so we couple this in our thinking with, with praise. Where adoration is awe of the soul because of his majesty and glory, praise is a delight of the soul because of the great works that God has done. See, we focus on God himself in the language of worship. And in fact, when we couple these together, it's a charge to worship, really, to us. It says to us, worship this God. Worship God and God alone. And we're drawn to his acts of mercy, to his provision for our souls and for our lives. And so we hear in the writers of Scripture writing things, the Lord is my rock, David says, my fortress and my deliverer. See, he sees the Lord God and his majesty, and yet he also sees because his, his soul reacts to this, what God has done as his rock, as that which is his steadier, that which is his protector, that which is his deliverer. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, the writer says, for he is good, for his mercies endure forever. See, we see the nature of God coming. There's an eternity in God, and yet he sees that in relation to man. His mercies endure forever, and there is something that we can grasp, something that we can hold. And so, together, the language of worship, adoration, and praise, not, not for our wants, not for our issues, not for ourselves, but it's spent on God and God alone. In First Chronicles, I believe it's where we see David praying, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, he says. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This is the call of Scripture. This is the language of worship, to adore and praise him. And so do we restrict our prayers to petitions alone? I don't remember who the writer was, but they, they cited um, a, a dictionary, apparently a theological dictionary that they had referenced, and it, it was limited. 
that, that prayer alone is petition and, and nothing more. And yet we see that nah, you, you read the scriptures. And this is where we learn these things, is it not? From the scriptures, it teaches us that we dare not restrict our prayer to petitions alone. Do, do we only react to the pressures of want? Benjamin Palmer says, oh, what a dull soul we would be if we only reacted to things that we want or desire. But he also says this, what can be worthier, a worthier use of the faculty of thought and feeling than to employ them in the worship of the august creator? See, see, our employment of our mind and our heart and our tongue, then, ought to be in the language of worship, adoring and praising the God for who he is and what he does. But we also have that privilege of the language of dependence. We have language of dependence in petition and thanksgiving. So we couple these together. And you would think at first, yeah, that, that goes together pretty well. We ask for things and we give thanks. And yet, and yet, how often do we see in our own souls and our own lives that when we secure something from God, we forget. We forget that coupling with thanksgiving. Petition could be defined as seeking blessings because of the needs that we feel in our souls. Uh, the, the first requisite is that we see that we have a need. And, and so we see this dependence. That, that when we see that need, we realize, I, I cannot fill it. I, I don't have a way of, of making that mine. And the feelings may be hunger. Hunger for food. They may be exhaustion. But do we limit it to only creaturely feelings, food and rest? Do we not also need pardon for sins? Do we not also have and desire a hunger for righteousness as well as our necessary food? Do we not also ask God to give us that thirst that the psalmist writes of as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so my soul would pant after you, O Lord. See, the addresses start with that need, the feeling that I have, but it is addressed to God as the source of the one who has the power to grant those petitions. There are many who say, I need these things, but they're addressed to their own devices or to other men or to how they can obtain them. But the addresses of the one who is dependent has one who, on whom he depends. God is the power. God has the ability. The petition, as someone called it, is an intelligent hope. Why? Because it understands from the scriptures that God is sufficient for these things and man is not. And so we see the need, we feel that deeply and we express it in petitions to God and then we see that thanksgiving again ought to be something naturally that follows as an expression of gratitude as a direct result of those needs being met. So in tandem they are 
to use the geometric word, they are complements. They complement one another. A sense of our need and a grateful thankfulness for the mercies received. Want drives us to God, but relief of want ought to drive us to acknowledge to God our thanksgiving and gratefulness for what he has supplied. And yet we know in Scripture that Jesus encountered an unthankful people, did he not? Jesus asks in Luke 17, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? The Scripture says that only one of the ten lepers that Jesus cleansed saw that he had been cleansed, saw that his request, Lord, have mercy on me, had been granted, and he and he alone turned back. And the scripture says he turned back, glorifying God and giving thanks to him. Which camp are we in? Do we go down the merry way with the nine being glad that our needs have been met, but forgetting or refusing to turn back and being with that one and standing beside him, glorifying God and giving thanks. So we have the language of worship and adoration and praise. We have the language of dependence in petition and in thanksgiving. And we also have the language of guilt in confession and supplication. Confession means speak together. And it's this picture that God and the prayer agree together about sin. God holds and declares sin as vile. It's reprehensible to him. It's aberrant to him. And in confession, it's where the sinner is made to see sin from the same angle from the same depth that he sees it from the same way and judge it so as God does. God does not have to come to a compromising position. We, he does not compromise. We have to come to his position on sin. And so the conscience is brought to shame. And the heart is made to feel the impurity of that action and that thought but the will must be turned in repentance before it is true confession. And so here is where supplication comes in. Supplication is that humility, and I would say even vehemence. And it's pictured in the, in the way the word is defined as a, as a kneeling posture, as the supplicant comes kneeling and bowing before God, pleading for forgiveness. He knows how God sees sin. And his heart comes to know that he has a need of being forgiven for this sin. And the supplication means he will not quit seeking God to forgive that sin. Benjamin Palmer writes, Supplication can never be suspended while the consciousness of sin remains. 
So there, there is that idea in supplication of keeping after, of persevering, of always keeping alert in it. Because Palmer goes on to say that in this tandem, in this great confession and supplication going together in the heart of man, he says all the powers of the soul are engaged. And in that parable that Jesus spoke in Luke 18, in that section where he's comparing and contrasting the Pharisee and the tax collector, all we know from the tax gatherer is that he said before God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He, he saw himself and self alone. He, 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 he looked at his own heart and he saw in there that God had pointed out his need, that God had pointed out his sin, that his heart cried out to be forgiven. And so his only wail his only supplication was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so does our experience of our blotted out sins and the pardon that we have been given through Christ in the presence of God, does it increase our confession? Does it increase our supplication? John Owen says, look at David. Look at David in the Psalms. He says, quote, David was not satisfied with the confession of his original and all known actual sins. When we look at Psalm 51, we, we see David before God saying, hey, you know, to God and God alone I have sinned. He says, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. He knew that it was sin, and he confessed that sin. And he goes through and he names those things. And yet, he doesn't stop there. In Psalm 19, Owen says, he, he desires cleansing from unknown sins. In Psalm 19, he says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So his confession is not only for the known sins, but also for the hidden sins, the things that God has not yet revealed and that we may even, our blind spot overlooks and does not even know. But David goes even further because Owen says, quote, he begs God to undertake the inward search of his heart. That great passage in Psalm 39, he says, test me, O God, try me and see if there be any wicked way in me, if there be any hurtful way in me, the New American Standard says, and lead me in the everlasting way. So he acknowledges his known sins. He asks God to acquit him of hidden sins that may be hidden to his own conscience, and yet they are still aberrant and vile to God. And yet he says, search me further. Look into the closets of my heart. Look into the recesses. Is there any hurtful way in me? And lead me in the way everlasting. That's confession, and that is supplication that is vehement, that is persevering that is all-purposeful. And so Palmer names the language of worship and adoration and praise, the language of dependence in petition and thanksgiving, 
the language of guilt in confession and supplication. And he doesn't name the last one, but I would call it the language of communion because the scriptures use the word intercession. The language of the body of believers. The language that a believer uses when he offers, as Paul calls it here, petitions for all the saints. Intercession as a word means to fall in line with or to meet with. It's a laying out of ourselves for our brethren in prayer. And, and where does this come from? It, it comes partly from who we are as people. It's part because we are social beings. We, it's part because we, we are fellow humans and we understand what life is like. We have a, some idea of what people feel and what people go through. But part of it is our position as members of one another. We're, we're members of the body of Christ. And, and we have this obligation. We, we have this duty. We have this thing that naturally arises as a member of something beyond ourselves. And part of it involves our duty given by the commandments as our obedience to the command of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself. And so these things come together in our intercession, in our falling in line with. We see their need, and we, forgetting ourselves, we pray for them. We lay ourselves out in prayer for them. And it results in a number of things. One is a correction for our own selfishness. For our own little be with and do this please for me God. And expands our horizons, expands our vision to the common nature of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because they are sinners saved by grace as we are. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of others and speaks to the Corinthians about their attitude toward their brothers, that brother, that sister for whom Christ died. And so our soul ought to be united with the soul of our brothers and sisters. Paul says there should be... in in 1 Corinthians 12, there should be no divisions in the body. And we say, yeah, that's what the book of Corinthians is about, but he immediately follows that with, if one member suffer, all members suffer with it. If one is honored, all the members rejoice with it. See, it's not just a saying there should be no division. There should be no division. There should be that unity among the believers in prayer and intercession for one another. Is this not a, one of those things, at least in that great prayer, prayer of Jesus in his high priestly prayer for us, John 14 through 17, one of the th reasons and the things, perhaps the, the reason behind it all, he says in John 17 he's in his prayer to the Father, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those that you have given me. The, the body of Christ. The ones, he goes on to say, for they're thine. They're yours, God. You've given them to me, and I am interceding for them. 
And we know that that work continues. And yet, if we would imitate Christ, we would intercede on behalf of our brethren as well. We, we would come to fall in line with them and know that if these are things that I feel before the Father, these are the things that I feel in my life, I know what you need. I, I know those things with which you struggle. Maybe in different degrees, maybe in different ways, but, but I know that this is my obligation because you are my fellow members in Christ. And so having some perhaps small sense of what we ought to pray for and about, having an idea of the language of prayer, we can be assured that those who sincerely endeavor to pray will have no lack of help from the Holy Spirit. No lack of aid in expressing ourselves as far as is necessary, both in our private closet prayers in our prayers with our families at home. And Paul says again, instruction to us as believers in Christ, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Teach us to pray. Teach us the language of worship. Teach us to see you in all your glory and majesty and not just come to you with our wants and needs. And yet, Father, we pray that you would give us a sense of that dependence, knowing that you and you alone have the power and sufficiency to provide all that we need for life and godliness. And Father, we ask that we would confess our sins before you, laying down that pride which would get in our way, that stubbornness which would prevent us from seeking repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking to be changed. And Father, drop from our lives that selfishness which keeps us from praying for others and laying out those things that we know they need and laying them before you knowing that you will hear us that you will give us aid by the power of the holy spirit father may you be glorified and honored in these things may we be strengthened in power and might to to persevere and to go on in life to walk as the apostle desires dired us to do and father we pray that you would build up your church and bless it and glorify your own name in christ's name we pray amen would you please rise for the benediction from paul's letter to the romans Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.